I took a pickup gig with John Tyler a couple of years ago, and it was really before I was active in the East Nashville scene. He had hit me up and asked me to play with him at Preservation Pub out in Knoxville. And I was a little bit nervous, very anxious. It was going to be a cover set. We were playing for a couple of hours. And we were also going to be doing a couple of John Tyler's original songs. So at this point, I was not really all that disciplined. I show up unprepared to rehearsals. I fucking embarrass myself at the gig. We start playing Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And John Tyler had switched guitars for it. And this guitar was tuned to E flat when we were, when I was in standard tuning. So I froze and I didn't play anything except for a couple of bad notes. And I got embarrassed and ashamed and it lived with me for such a long time. And it, it's what kicked off me really like journaling and writing everything down and making notes and all that shit was eating shit on our way back. We stopped, stopped off at uh at Waffle House. And when we got in there, there were these white supremacist bikers. They had on their leather vest jackets with all kinds of Nazi symbols on them. And like one of the guys, one of the the biker dudes, he he dumped like a a water out on somebody and it was very scary. The moral of the story is you got to be able to deliver if someone's willing to pay you money uh, for music and you got to treat it like a job, which I, for whatever reason, was just up in my own head and I had all of this fucking anxiety about it, all this unnecessary anxiety. I ended up making $77 from, uh, from playing. And at the end, I maybe went home with three at the end of the night because by the time we split up, the gas money as well as made a stop at that Waffle House to watch uh, fucking white supremacist like a prison fight almost break out. I, I didn't make any money, but I lived to tell the tale. First time I heard about the Black Keys, I was maybe a sophomore in high school, and I was really into the Doors and garage rock in general. I had spent all my time scouring the internet for different garage rock bands from the 60s, and eventually I came upon the uh, the compilation Nuggets, which I think that that's by like... Uh, I don't know, it's by, it's by some, maybe Pat Dan, Benatar's husband or Patty Smith's husband. I can't remember who it was. But, um, yeah, deep into garage rock, was loving those kind of sounds. My friend George Now, who was a bass player for the band Sonic Obito, another band at my school, said, dude, you got to check out the Black Keys. You would really like them. And I checked them out, and I really wasn't a fan of them because they didn't have a bass player and I was a bassist. 
which is ironic because I was just talking about the doors. But about two or three weeks before I graduated high school on May 18, 2010, Brothers by the Black Keys was released. And I maybe heard some single at that point from the album and that Danger Mouse was going to be producing one of the songs. He produced Tighten Up on that album. So I knew I had to get into it because I was a huge Danger Mouse fan. He was one of my producing heroes, and he had worked with them in the past as well on, on some of their earlier records. When I got Brothers, I remember buying it from Bull Moose on the day it came out. Like, I was at the record store whenever it came out. And I liked that the cover said, this is, uh, whatever it says, this is uh, an album by the Black Keys. The name of this album is The Brothers. I thought that was funny. I remember unwrapping it and putting it in and listening to it for the first time. And at that point, I was listening to Green Day, My Chemical Romance. I was into other stuff as well. But this was really a turning point for me as far as my taste maturing with music. There was a lot of hip-hop sounds on there. Like, they had these heavy drum and bass sounds, which makes sense due to the way that they recorded it. It was a lot of just the two of them. It was either... Uh, them like playing playing together in a room and like Dan on the bass and everything like that so they they quote unquote had a bass player now so I deem that as as cool in my uh, underdeveloped musical mind but the record was amazing it blew me away from start to finish it was one of the first records that me and my friend Kurt Riley bonded over when I moved to Florida, I was in this band called Brighthead, and the front man slash guitar player was Kurt Riley, and he approved of the Black Keys, and he didn't like much new stuff. There was very few new bands that he liked at that time, but he said the Black Keys were cool because they sounded old, but they also sounded new. And as time would go on, I, I started just deep diving into them. Brothers was living with me in my speakers everywhere that I went. Eventually, maybe about a year or so later, the next album came out, El Camino, which I loved. It was like Brothers, but it was, it was fast, faster. Brothers was more groovy, laid-back, melancholy, and... El Camino is arena rock songs. It's like every song from that album could be a single. So I was super excited for that. Bought it on vinyl. Uh, I bought Brothers on vinyl too. And they, they both came with posters, which I liked. I thought that was really cool. Like the Brothers one came with this black and white poster of Dan and Pat jamming. And then El Camino came with one where on the front of it, it was all the different vans uh, that they saw. Maybe it was around Akron or around Nashville or something like that. But I was instantly in love, and I started going back and trying to find interviews with them. And they were talking about being from a small town and having a working-class mindset, which is something that I really related to as well, they came from an industry town in Akron, Ohio, 
which is where they made all the tires. Like, there used to be a bunch of tire factories from there. And it was similar to where I was from in Maine because in Maine, everybody's dad works at Bath Ironworks, which is a a good-paying union job building battleships for the Navy. So that was something that was relatable to me, too. They had, like, a blue-collar background, when I feel like a lot of musicians try and shy away and hide the fact that they have a blue-collar background, that they're ashamed or embarrassed of it, or they don't have one and their parents were just rich. That's the other thing that normally happens. Because um, it's like, even in Nashville, there's, there's basically two sects of musicians, which is the working class versus the people whose parents still pay their rent. Um, but... What's funny is everybody is at the same spot in their career. They don't know how to get ahead, and they're just out playing shows and trying to get on the road, whatever it is. But back to the working class thing. So they were working class dudes uh, that I, I found very relatable, and they were dingy but not without groove. Because I feel like when a lot of bands kind of get dingy and grimy, they lose that essence of having girls be able to dance to it. So whenever I was at a party or whatever, that would always be the music that was on in the background and the chicks dug it. And it was guitar music. At this point, what musically was happening back in 2010? You have maybe like the Black Eyed Peas. You have Katy Perry. She was probably the reigning pop star. Um, Kanye West, but he's in a league of his own. Let's... Let's not get that confused. So it was exciting to me that someone was playing rock music and they were about to go on an arena tour. So back to El Camino. El Camino comes out, Black Keys announce a huge tour, and they're going to be playing at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, And which is actually the first place I saw my first ever concert. It was Fall Out Boy uh, was the headliner, and then All-American Rejects, Hawthorne Heights, from first to last, which was Sonny Moore's band, a.k.a. Skrillex, and this other band called The Hush Sound, which they have this great song, um, Crawling Towards the Sun. Go check it out. But, um, yeah, so I go to Cumberland County Civic Center with my girlfriend at the time to go see this show of the Black Keys with Arctic Monkeys opening. Arctic Monkeys... I had a love-hate relationship with at this point. There was some of their music that I liked. I didn't really like their first two records. Uh, Back when I first started listening to them, there was this girl that I liked uh, all throughout high school, and she loved Arctic Monkeys. She thought they were so cool. She was in love with Alex Turner, and it would make me so mad because she would tease me about how much she loved Alex Turner. And, uh... It was always like a situation with her where it's like, are we going to date? Are we not going to date? She's kind of into me, but she's not into me. A lot of mixed messages, which I was an emotional mess back then, so I don't really blame her. Uh, But anyways, that was the night also that my love for Arctic Monkeys kicked in was when I saw them at the show opening. This was after Suck It and See had come out. This was the support tour for that. I was maybe 20 years old, I want to say, 1920 maybe. 
Um, and I had got every single Arctic Monkeys record, maybe except for the first one, on the day it came out. Um, and always I tried to give it a try, but I was never into them. But uh, Suck It In See, I remember when that came out. I did actually like that album, but I was still kind of lukewarm on them. Like, I was too, too cool for school. But they had, um, I think, a primitive version of Are You Mine was released as a single at that point. But it wasn't, it, AM wasn't out yet. Like, Arctic Monkeys were not the big band that they are now in the U.S. Because at that point, they were more of, like, they would play big clubs in the U.S. They would play, like, House of Blues or other places like that. And maybe they would get on some big festival bills, but they weren't U- proper U.S. headliners like they are now. Um, they opened. They were bombastic. Uh that is the best way to describe them. And that's what really sold me on them and made me start loving them is they were an incredible live band. So uh, their set wasn't too long. It was maybe 45 minutes or so. Black Keys, they come out, and it was fucking incredible. The thing that sticks out in my memory that night was when they played Ten Cent Pistol. They... I don't know what it was about it. I think they did this thing where they kind of like stopped playing and let the audience just to, to like hear the audience. And then they came back in. But you can actually listen to that exact show on the, the reissue of El Camino. It's that whole show. So go check it out. So where was I in my life journey at this point? I think I maybe moved out to Colorado for a year and then came back and Turn Blue was about to come out. At the time, I was probably listening a lot to Vampire Weekend. They were, they had just come out with Modern Vampires of the City, which I really loved that album. That was their third album. But, um... I remember hearing on Record Store Day a CD single of Fever in this song, Turn Blue, was going to be released. So I went down to Bull Moose, got the CD, and was super excited to, uh, to hear it, to be able to ride around and listen to it in my 2000 Pontiac Grand Dam, which is kind of funny because I, I was actually like sick whenever it came out, and I still went to the store to go, sit, uh, to go get it. And I, I had an actual fever. I mean, it's kind of dumb, but that's just my memory of it. And simultaneously, I think Jack White and the Black Keys always release albums at, around the same time. Uh, and of course, everybody plays up, oh, they had a rivalry all those years ago and since have made up. But to, 2014 was like, you were in the heat of the rivalry. I was a fan of both, but I was more, I love the Black Keys. And I do love Jack White now. I feel like for a long time I didn't get him. I didn't understand his music. But Lazaretto, I think, was the album that sold me on him. I loved Lazaretto. It was fantastic. I was working as an IT salesman, driving around, listening to Turn Blue and Lazaretto. Those were like my two albums of that summer. I was starting to feel miserable in Maine. I knew I wanted to get out. 
eventually that whole thing happened with my granddam where the guy backed into it and he ripped off the bumper and I got a payout and I was able to leave Maine and right towards the end of it, it was announced that Dan had a new band called the arcs. And that was with Leon Michaels and Nick Moff shown Homer Steinwise, uh, and a couple other people, and I was super stoked on that. I think that was probably early 2015. I can't remember what the first song was. It might have been Out of My Mind uh, from that ARCS album, or it might have been Stay In My Corner. It was actually, I think it was Stay In My Corner, because I remember a couple of months later when I was in North Carolina on Record Store Day, there was a... 7-inch 45 that was released with Tomato Can as the B-side, which is a great song. It's a B-side to the record. Go check it out. It's all about a boxer who throws a, who throws a match uh, to, to make money. It reminds me of, uh, of uh, Bruce Willis's character in Pulp Fiction, that song. So I am waiting to get to fucking Nashville in North Carolina, and... I know I want to get there as soon as I can because that's where the Black Keys are. That was the thing that, that has always sold me on Nashville was the Black Keys were here. Jack White was here. Those darlings were here, uh, RIP to Jesse. And it was the place for me to be. So I get to Nashville probably a month later or maybe, yeah, it wasn't long after I got here, Yours Dreamly by The Arcs came out, which was a great album. Because um, it was kind of a little bit weirder and psychedelic. Uh, it was more of a deviation from the Black Keys music. So that was exciting to hear Dan in a, a different context. Because I, I had listened to his solo record, his first one, but it didn't really resonate with me. Um, but that changed once his, his second solo record came out. But anyways, I uh, saw the, the arcs probably December of 2015 at the Ryman Auditorium. And Nick Moffshone, he was one of my favorite bass players. He's played with Bruno Mars, Amy Winehouse. So I was already very excited uh, to go see them live, and I love the album, but Dan plays bass on most of the album. Um, Nick plays on a few songs, and you can tell it's him, but Dan is m more of a, like, as a bass player, I feel like he doesn't get talked about much, but he's a, an excellent bass player because he really plays just groove. Um, I mean, his guitar playing is obviously very good, too, but he doesn't get the props that he deserves for being a, a great bass player. So, uh, in that same time frame, Tell Me I'm Pretty by KG Elephant comes out. That was probably early December of 2015 that Tell Me I'm Pretty came out. And that was produced by Dan. So, I was super stoked on that. Uh, prior to that, I never really listened to Cage the Elephant, but I got into their album Melophobia, I think that's what it's called. But I had been pumping that and a couple of other 
things by like the Black Keys and the singles that were released by the Arcs to get myself in the mood, as well as like Amy Winehouse, because it was a lot of the same musicians or at least the same uh, rhythm section. So I was excited for that. I saw KG Elephant play a sold out show at the Basement East. And I really love Tell Me I'm Pretty. I love that song, Trouble. It's an incredible track. So some more time passes in my Nashville journey. I'm here. I have another job. I have my own apartment. I have a car now. My grandmother gave me this car. It was a 1988 Toyota Camry that she called James. It was black. And... The AC worked excellent in it. It was probably the summer of, spring summer of 2015 that it, that Waiting on a Song came out. And that was exciting because, like, the one thing I forgot to mention is, is Dan records most of the music he does here in Nashville at Easy Eye Sound Studios. So it's, it, it's exciting to me. You know, it was always very exciting to me. I felt like there was somebody doing something similar to what I wanted, being being a songwriter and playing in a band and also producing other artists. And I actually ended up getting into the Growlers because I heard Dan Auerbach had produced an album for them that never came out. I don't know which one it was. It was the one with One Million Lovers. Uh, But all those demos are on YouTube. You You can listen to them. But that really got me into the band, The Growlers, and they've since become one of my favorite bands. But back to Waiting on a Song. So Waiting on a Song was the first album released by Easy Eye Sound, the label. And all of the players that are on the album and the, and the, the, like the co-writers that wrote these songs with Dan are, are Nashville legends. It's... Uh, Gene Chrisman, who played on a lot of the, uh, the Memphis uh, tracks with, like, Bobby Wood. The bass player was uh, Johnny Cash's bass player. I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. What was his name? Let me, let me Google this just so I can, I can remember what it is. Johnny Cash bass player. Here we go. Dave Rowe, that's it. Another Nashville legend. But he's playing with all of these Nashville and Memphis legends from the 60s and 70s. And for the release of the Wedding on a Song record, if you bought the vinyl, it would be an autographed vinyl. And you would get an autographed poster. It's like this album-sized poster. Because he was playing a release show. He was supposed to be playing an acoustic release show the day the album came out at Grimey's at their old location in the parking lot that was uh, down by where the, ba- uh, the basement is, the basement OG. So I was expecting an acoustic performance, and the whole band shows up. So that was pretty cool. I was actually on a date with this girl, and afterwards we went out to... There's this Irish pub in Donaldson. I can't remember what the name of it is, though. It's a fantastic place right next to Fat Bites. If you've never tried it, go try it. They have really good steak and biscuits. It's awesome. But, yeah, eventually it's announced. Dan's going to be playing at the Ryman with all these guys on the Easy Eyes Sound Tour, yada, yada, yada. I go out, get tickets. I go with my dad. We have a great time. 
So it's really cool to be able to, to say that I saw some of those players who are like from the, the prime era. At this point, I'm, I'm all in. I'm whatever the Black Keys and Dan Auerbach end up doing. The next thing I remember them releasing that I at least resonated with, or at least Dan did, was Mockingbird by the Gibson Brothers, still using all the same musicians that I was just talking about. Uh, with these guys, I, I think the Gibson Brothers are like a bluegrass band normally. But the first thing they released, either the first or second thing they released, was a single of Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., but it was done in the style of a country song. I really feel like that song, not, not the Gibson Brothers version, but the original version has become like a joke. You know, it got used in the office. It, it gets used for melancholy effect or uh, comedic effect because it, it, it's kind of like uh, used in the juxtaposition of, of context it's usually used for comedy, and I just never like that. I feel like it was disrespectful to the music, but at the end of the day, who gives a fuck? They got paid. They probably don't care either if they cleared it. But yeah, Mockingbird comes out. Fantastic songs on there. Dan, you can hear him um, on, one of the, on one of the songs called Come Down, like his voice he was singing with the guys. It sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, and I was, I was just super in love with it. Shannon in Nashville was another one that came out uh, by Shannon Shaw from Shannon and the Clams, another Easy Eye Sound Band. And there's a great song on that record called uh, Leather, Metal, and Steel. And it's all about a woman leaving a relationship behind her in a car. And it's just a, a classic piece of Nashville songwriting. It reminds me of something that, like, Elvis would have played when he was in Vegas. Like, that stage of his career. It's worth checking out. Go check out that album as well. After a four-year hiatus, which was a lot of the time that I was in Nashville, the Black Keys come out with Let's Rock, their ninth studio album. And they end up having a, a tour for that album, and they play at Bridgestone Arena. Josh Norfleet calls me the night that we're supposed to be rehearsing for my first solo show. So this was probably October, October 2019, or maybe it was 2018. I can't remember the years. They all start to blur together. Uh, but he says, hey, you want to go see the Black Keys tonight? I know you want to practice your solo shit. And I tell him, No. We got to practice. It's what the Black Keys would do. Like In my head, that's what I was thinking. They would practice. They would skip the show and go practice. So um, we practice, yada, yada, yada. I play the show. It was a good time, whatever. Uh, the next album after Let's Rock was Delta Cream, which sounds like them finding inspiration again. It's a covers album of all, like, uh, Hill Country Blues. I think that's what it's called. But it's artists like Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside and all that. It's all covers. And they're playing with a couple of the guys who played with those guys in Mississippi. 
the first single from that album was Crawling King Snake, and I, I dug it. You know, it was it's very groovy and uh, hypnotic. I think the kind of music that the Black Keys play, it's like a, a psychedelic hypnotic meditation, a trance. That's actually the word I'm looking for. It's like a trance. So they sounded um, fun again. You know, not that Let's Rock didn't sound fun, but there was something else to this. It was like they were going back to their roots, and a lot of their fans were very excited because they were playing kind of dirty, dingy blues songs again, all playing, like, live in the room together. You can hear them, like, talking before takes, uh, false starts on songs, whatever. Uh, Natural endings, which sometimes when you're playing a song for the first time, it can be kind of sloppy on stage, especially with blues, because you you never know how you're going to end it. You don't know what someone's blues reference is. Like playing at the jams here in Nashville, at these at the various blue jams, whether it's carriage jam, pop attorneys, you just have to wait for the cue. And you can kind of get a vibe. Uh, but as a bass player, I always felt like I was kind of just like left guessing. And I'm like, well, I hope I do what they want. But m- oftentimes, more than not, that's the point of the blues. The blues is a very simple, deceptively simple form of music. I'll say that about the blues. But now the Black Keys have just released their 11th studio album, Dropout Boogie. Dropout Boogie, it's, it, it's like, you know how when a, um, when a movie studio reboots a film franchise, like they do with the Halloween movies, like they've rebooted it 20 times over, uh, and they're like, oh, so the only real Halloween movies are Halloween 1 and 2, and now it's like that Halloween movie that came out just a couple of years ago. They're like, well, it picks up right where it left off, so ignore all those other movies. That's what Dropout Boogie kind of feels like as an album. It's like, maybe you can throw Turn Blue in there, but it's really like El Camino and then Dropout Boogie. It's in the same vein. Some of the songs are faster. Some of them are more groovy. There's touches of everything on the on the album. The first single, Wild Child, is amazing. I heard that, got excited. Love the music video. It's very funny. Uh, great sense of humor. What The song that I think I first loved from the album, and it's still very new to me because it just came out, your team is looking good, which they the band said they had to call their lawyer to figure out how to get it cleared because Dan was listening to all these old field recordings of Hill Country Blues songs, and there was this cheer on it, and that's how they ended up getting uh, like the melody for your team is looking good because the song kind of starts out with like a, a stomp on there, or like like classic stadium drums. Like, that kind of a feel. But the whole album is great from start to finish. It's exciting, and they sound reinvigorated again. Um, and that's not to diminish any of the other work that they do, they've done between El Camino and now, but this was exactly what I wanted from 
the Black Keys. You can hear touches of every single thing that they've done in the past. On this record, they brought in some outside collaborators, Greg Cartwright, uh, Angelo, I think his name's Proteglia, who he worked with Kings of Leon when they were first starting up. Billy Gibbons plays on the record as well. Um, I really want to go see them on this tour since it's been about 10 years since I've seen them live. Of course, I've seen Dan a couple of times uh, with his various projects that he's had outside of the Black Keys. But I want to see these songs live. I really like It Ain't Over. It, uh, it has, they use some kind of like uh, sample toy thing and it ha- you put a disc in there and they flipped it, I guess, and played it backwards. Uh, Pat had said that his, his uncle had showed it to him. It's some toy, music toy that Mattel had made. But that's more along the lines of like, like an arc song. But it's still, of course, very Black Keys. Uh, and then the other song that I really like on the album is um, Good Love, which is the one that Billy Gibbons is featured on. So, yeah, go check out Dropout Boogie. And go check out some of the other things I was talking about today, too. Like, if you haven't listened to Shannon in Nashville, go listen to that. Or Mockingbird. I think the sleeper hit out of all of this is Mockingbird by the Gibson Brothers. I also failed to mention Yola, who is amazing as well. Uh, Dan's done two records with her now. And uh, I really like that song of her first record, Right Out in the Country. Later this summer, Dan, um, well, Marcus King has his, his, uh, an album coming out called Young Blood that Dan produced. And he's released two songs from that as well. So go check that out. So in the end, what is it that I love about the Black Keys? Their working class work ethic. I mean, Dan was just pumping stuff out even when the Black Keys weren't happening. I like their sense of humor. I like the fact that they both come from a blue-collar background. Originally, Danger Mouse is what brought me in because I was a Danger Mouse fanboy. The sounds, the songwriting, the production, and the fact that there's groove. There's guitar music with groove still. I just think that's really cool. (laughs) 